For me, New York City is like a big piece of chocolate cake. It's hard to resist. It's rich and flavorful. When I don't have it for a while, I crave it. And when I do eat it, I want to savor every bite. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A lot of us have strong feelings about New York City. Newcomers often talk about their first time here, how they were smitten by the twinkling night skyline or the diversity on the streets. New Yorkers who move away often reminisce about their relationship with the city. And if you live here, you probably love it and hate it at the same time, but always find it hard to leave and get a rush of emotion when you return. All that being Being said, we thought it appropriate on Valentine's Day to do a show that expresses our love for New York City. Glad you're with us for Cityscape. Happy Valentine's Day. If we all had to create a top 10 list of why we love New York City, those lists would likely be as diverse as the city itself. We asked award-winning storyteller Regina Rest to share her feelings about the city. There is much I love about New York City. I often joke that New York is my significant other. And like any serious relationship, there are things I love and things I could do without. But in thinking about this question, what I love about New York, one of the things I love the most about New York is actually often things that I do without, but love knowing they are there. I love the possibility of things here. You don't need to use it all. You don't need to do it all. But the fact that it's there and you can, that's what I love. Like the old Fulton Fish Market. I never went there. I don't like fish. I don't like eating fish. I don't like smelling fish. I don't even like looking at fish, especially dead ones. But I loved the idea of that old market down at South Street. Or the Oscar Wilde Bookstore. I think it's the oldest gay bookstore in the country. I've passed it often. I never went in. But I loved the fact of it. It was there. Whenever I walked up Christopher Street, I liked knowing it was there. I hear it's about to close. Another of our endangered species. But pretty much, pretty much anything and everything is available in New York City somewhere. Everything, anything, day or night. Now, here's a true story. Years ago, maybe 35 years ago, there was a group of dancers from Papua New Guinea performing up at the Museum of Natural History. I'm interested in the arts of indigenous cultures, so being unemployed at the time and having the time then to hang out wherever I wanted, I went up to see if I could hang out with the dancers. I got into a long conversation with their manager, the guy who brought them to the museum, and we talked about this, we talked about that, and then I said, is there anything they need? I mean, they're a long ways from home. Is there anything you want me to get for them? And he says, no, they're fine. Well, there is something they'd like, but I'm sure you won't find it in New York. To which I replied, try me. Beetle nuts, he says. Beetle nuts. Give me an hour or so. I bet I know I can get them. And I jumped on the C train back down to West 4th Street, went over to the original Aphrodisia, the herb store that's now on Bleecker. It used to be on Carmine Street, back when Carmine still had old Italian men making lamps by hand. I have one. It still works. Anyway, I went to Aphrodisia, and I asked Joanne, the owner, if she had any beetle nuts. 
Sure, she said. They're dried, of course. I bought a big bag, jumped back on the sea train, and went back to the museum. And when I handed them to the guy, he could not believe it. And I said, hey, this is New York. Anything you want. Anything. At some point in my peripatetic life, I was spending time in Hawaii every year. My Hawaiian friends made leis, not just of local flowers, but also feather leis for hats. But feathers were much harder to come by out there, so I'd go up to the street with all the hat trimming stores and have a great time rooting around old cardboard boxes full of bird pelts, quail, guinea hen. But getting the feathers was really just an excuse to explore that corner of the garment district. I got an adventure, my Hawaiian friends got feathers, tourists got feather lays for their hats. So yeah, that's what I like. The strange and funny corners of the city, and the odd stuff you can get. And a lot of it's going. Like the flower district. I'm not a wholesale flower buyer, but I love the fact it was there, and you'd walk down the street under ferns and palms. I had a boyfriend years ago. We had this thing about the city. We just loved it. We used to meet on dates at four in the morning in the flower district and just hang out while they were unloading the trucks, and the whole street smelled like Hawaii. One time, just before Valentine's Day, we asked if they would sell us single flowers, you know, for the holiday. Well, they weren't supposed to. Wholesale only, it said, all over the signs. But, of course, they did. I bought my boyfriend an anthurium because he had my heart. And he bought me a great big bird of paradise, and he said to the guys in the shop, This little lady is my bird of paradise. He was a character. And those guys in that shop, they were great characters, too. And the flower district was kind of a character. And all of the other odd corners, deeply unique corners, deeply real places, real people, that's what I love. I guess I'm a total romantic. I think a lot of us are. That's how and why we can love this craziness called New York City. That's what's got me hooked, New York and I. We're in a long-term relationship. I could do worse. Regina Ress is an award-winning storyteller from New York's Greenwich Village. A lot of people have a special place in their heart for New York City's landmarks, including the Brooklyn Bridge. WFUV's Lauren McGrath has more on that love story. Loved by native New Yorkers and tourists alike, the Brooklyn Bridge is one of the city's most adored pieces of architecture. It's also one of the most romantic. On weekends, you can usually find couples strolling the span, sometimes snapping photos along the way. What many of them don't know is that the bridge tells a love story of its very own. Construction on the Brooklyn Bridge began in 1869 with John Augustus Roebling at the helm of the project. Not even a year into the task, Roebling died after an accident at the bridge. The job was then left to his son, Washington Roebling. But just three years later, Washington was also involved in an accident at the site. He was left crippled and could only survey the span's completion from a window of his Brooklyn home. As Valerie Paley with the New York Historical Society explains, it was actually Washington's wife, Emily Warren Roebling, who helped complete the Brooklyn Bridge. His wife took up uh, his role and was essentially a courier transporting messages between Roebling and the builders and engineers on the bridge. After the bridge was completed in 1883, Emily's contributions weren't forgotten. She's memorialized on a plaque on the bridge. 
The span combines elements from two different worlds. Its lines are reminiscent of Gothic architecture, while its strong steel structure represents America's industrialization. Almost from the get-go, it was conceived with a kind of monumentality, a symbolism for the future and also looking back um, to the past with a, a kind of aesthetic form. In fact, the critic Lewis Mumford uh, referred to it as one of the most satisfying pieces of architecture in the country. Today, even lifelong New Yorkers like Paley never tire of the structure. She still finds it breathtaking. If you've ever walked across the bridge uh, at any time of the day or night, it is spectacular to stand on the roadway. I think one can't help but be swept up by the grandeur of the skyline when you're standing there. And at times you can feel like you're the only person on the bridge. You're suspended between Manhattan and Brooklyn, and it is extraordinarily romantic, I guess. Perhaps that's why the bridge is one of the most popular places to get engaged in New York City. Sheena and Jason Larkin from the West Village can see why. They say there's nowhere else like it. I think when we first moved here, this was like our favorite part of the city, and we love walking across. Yeah, it's romantic at night, just seeing the skyline, and it's our favorite. Yeah, I mean, the skyline's our favorite part, probably. Yeah, I think this is our favorite part of the city, is the Brooklyn Bridge. Katie Lyman is a Manhattan-based wedding and engagement photographer. When it comes to capturing couples on and around the big day, she says the Brooklyn Bridge is one of her most requested shoot locations. She recalls why the spot is so special to one couple in particular. I remember Anthony and Elizabeth got married at Bubby's, which is in Dumbo, in front of the bridge. And they got married the weekend that it was the bridge's 125th anniversary. And Anthony is from London, and I remember him mentioning like how appropriate it was that they had this bridge in the background of their reception and they hoped that everyone would enjoy it and that it's sort of symbolic of crossing the pond. Lyman says no matter what the season, no matter what time of day, the Brooklyn Bridge is a picturesque place to explore, enjoy and capture. The crossing that was built with both the future and the past in mind has come to represent something very special for New Yorkers and all couples on journeys of their own. For Cityscape, I'm Lauren McGrath. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. On this Valentine's Day, we're expressing our love for New York City. This next love story is about a bride, a groom, and a subway train, told by the bride, Ophira Eisenberg. There's an ending to a Sex and the City episode that always sticks in my mind like wax to a mustache. Carrie, after a series of Fleet Week parties, goes home alone, proclaiming that until she finds her true love, dating New York will do just fine. Now, I, too, have a tangible relationship with New York. Uh, I wouldn't say we date, though. New York, to me, is more like a jealous, moody, high-maintenance girlfriend who I love, but 
gets in my way occasionally and tries to sabotage me for sport. I noticed this especially when I was dating. I mean, when you're on that first date and you can't get into the bar you want because it's overcrowded, or you have to hear your date's preference and of waxing of your nether regions, or if it goes really well, that decision you have to make, are we going to go home to my house with the three roommates or his place with the three subway transfers? It was no different even the day I got married. Jonathan and I got secretly married at City Hall. We did this because we wanted to try to avoid all the pressure we were feeling to have a big traditional wedding that neither of us wanted and neither of us could afford. I mean, getting married in New York is a ridiculous expense. In any other city, you could take that money and buy a hospital or a neighborhood. So we decided for $25, we could run down to City Hall and have a beautiful wedding <laughs> together. Then the following day, before we were to get married, I freaked out. I felt very overwhelmed, quite emotional, and with no one to talk to, I decided to focus on the superficial. What was I going to wear? I decided it was my big wedding day and I could justify any purchase, so I ran down to anthropology. That was my idea of splurging. I went in there with the idea I could buy anything and found this beautiful white flowery sundress that was overpriced, didn't really fit perfectly, but it was quite pretty, just like a real wedding dress. I brought it up to the cashier and she looked and said, oh, I love this dress. It's one of my favorites in the store. I couldn't help myself. I said, really? I'm getting married in it tomorrow. Well, the blood drained from her face. I mean, it was like I was the bridal antichrist, tarnishing her dreams and fantasies of her special day being a princess. She didn't know what to say, but finally settled on, well, uh, it's not your first marriage, is it? <laughs> on top of all the things that implies, it also implies that the only people that shop at anthropology are dirty divorcees. Yes, it is, I said, kind of savoring every second of her discomfort. After a not-so-thoughtful moment, she settled on, Well, um, well, you got a great deal on a wedding dress. Yes, I did. It was kind of like having a conversation with a bridesmaid. We were to meet at 1.15 on the six-train platform at 23rd Street. At 1.45, I stood there alone, feeling that my dress was really overpriced. Is this really the way my life is going to go? Seriously? Am I going to be stood up on my wedding day at the 23rd Street 6 train platform? That's my story? And just as I was about to leave to make cell phone calls and freak out, Jonathan came running towards me, looking like he was running away from a house on fire, scared and sweating. What had happened was that he accidentally got on the express train, and of course, I couldn't see him zooming by me on the middle track, waving, going, look, no, really, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm in my old suit, look it, I'm ready. <laughs> All I could do was get angry at him, and then hug him, and get back on the train to go to City Hall. After all, it was our wedding day. And then we strolled that golden sand. Two sweethearts and the summer wind. Getting married at City Hall in New York is like getting married at the DMV. It is so void of atmosphere and ambiance that you have to work really hard to make it something romantic and special. We joined a really long line of other couples. Of course, everything in New York has a really long line. And it was a pretty diverse bunch. I mean, there was like college kids and... A lot of people that looked like they were trying to get a green card. 
we finally walked into the chapel to get married and said to the justice of the peace, listen, we don't have rings, just so you know, so you might want to skip that part. She nodded and two seconds into her 30-second speech said, now please take her left hand and put on the ring. Yeah, really? You can't improvise? Go off script for just two seconds? No? Just going to read it how it is? Okay, yeah, good. Excellent. It really was like getting married in the DMV. I mean, seriously. We just held our hands and laughed at each other. Afterwards, we went to this little Italian place in our neighborhood for a glass of champagne to celebrate. And when I ordered the second round, I just blurted out to the waiter, We just got married at City Hall! We just got married an hour ago! And he looked at us like we were freaks. I don't know if he was like the woman at Anthropology, thinking, why would you come here afterwards, of all places? Or if he just thought I was trying to get a free drink. But he said, congratulations, very flatly, and then gave us a bill. It was undiscounted. It was shocking to me that in such a complex, rich, uh, non-traditional society that is New York City, how many people couldn't quite get their head around what we had done? except for New York itself, who made sure it played the starring role in our entire wedding escapade and relished in every moment of it. I married a native New Yorker, so I think New York City knows that I'm here to stay. I'm never going to leave, and that forever and ever, my primary relationship will always be New York City. Ophira Eisenberg is a comic and storyteller. Learn more about her at OphiraEisenberg.com. You can catch her live February 23rd at Comics in Manhattan. Next on Cityscape, songs inspired by this great city of ours. We asked New York Times music critic Ben Ratliff to put together a compilation for us. This is a very hard assignment that you gave me to think of songs that express in some way a love of New York because... A lot of the songs that immediately popped to mind were songs that, that were actually about hating New York. <laughs> when, when you looked a little closer at them, it was about how New York is a hard place, you know, a disappointing place or a treacherous place. And I wanted songs that had some kind of positivity in it, even if it was sort of like hard-earned wisdom. You're going to take us on a musical journey of New York City. We're going to be introduced to New York City. We're going to spend some time in New York City, and then we're going to look at New York City from afar, right? Yeah, then at the end, we're going to leave it and think about it, you know, in the rearview mirror. This journey begins with an artist by the name of Caetano Veloso. Yes, Caetano Veloso is Brazilian singer-songwriter who's in his 60s now and has spent a lot of time in New York over the years. And he loves New York, but he wrote a song about New York almost as a sort of mythical place. And it's called Maniata, which is how you might say the word Manhattan if you were a Portuguese speaker. These lyrics are in Portuguese, but they mean a whirlwind of money sweeps the whole word, a light leviathan, and here wars dance amid love's peaceful dwellings. And he talks about solitude and danger and treachery. But the song is a love song. When he sings the word maniata, you know that he's singing it because he loves it. As we all know, New York City is great during any season. But Frank Sinatra sings about autumn in New York. Autumn 
Why does it seem so inviting? Autumn in New York, to me, was the song that came to mind immediately when thinking about songs about loving New York. It's the king of such songs. Musically, it's beautiful, but also it's got the whole mixture of, like, thrill and dread that you feel when you're in New York, you know? When I come back to the city after being away, my first glimpse of the skyline is like, oh, there it is again. You know, it's like this incredible surge of warm feelings. But the very next thing I think of is, you know, obligations and things I got to do and little fires I have to put out. All that stuff is mixed together in this song. And, you know, there's the line, Autumn in New York is often mingled with pain in what's supposed to be a song about, you know, how glorious it is to be a New Yorker. Autumn in New York is often mingled with pain Dreamers with empty hands they sigh for exotic The Ramones formed in Forest Hills, Queens, and they have a song about Queens, Rockaway Beach. The line I really like in it is, the sun is out and I want some, as if it were something that they had to chase down and uh, trap or something, (laughs) as if it wasn't something that was just everywhere for anybody. It's also just, you know, a great urban beach song. Of all the Duke Ellington songs, why did you choose Harlem Airshaft? Harlem Airshaft was uh, written and recorded around 1940. He had this term, tone parallel, such a beautiful term. A tone parallel meaning like a tone poem, you know, a musical description of real things. And he talked about a Harlem Airshaft as a place where you can stick your head out the window and hear all these different sounds coming together. And there's a lot of different strains and threads running through this song that are almost like battling with each other. It's a complicated little tune, and it's all compressed within three minutes. This next song I want to talk about is not by any means a great rap song. It's maybe an okay rap song. It's the South Bronx Subway Rap. It's by um, Grandmaster Kaz, who started out as, I think his name was DJ Fly Casanova. He was very early on in the history of South Bronx hip-hop. And this track, it's just a track on the soundtrack for the movie Wild Style. The opening lines are look past the garbage <laughs> you know look past the 
Blast the garbage over the trains, under the ruins, through the remains, around the crime and pollution, and tell me where I fit in. He's South talking Bronx, about the reality of South Bronx, which in the late 70s and early 80s was terrible. He cops to that, but he also says it's a place of possibility. I mean, I think that's the best way to see any city. So uh, pay particular attention to the first 30 seconds of the song. <laughs> Kid Creole and the Coconuts have a song called Going Places. Kid Creole, real name is August Darnell. The only part of the song that really makes this germane to this show is the refrain, which is, believe me, I know, when you leave New York, you're going nowhere. It's the line that you keep thinking about after you hear the song. It's a great song, by the way. Say where you going, boy. Me, me, she, she. They keep shifting into this kind of ominous, repeated chorus about how, like, look, don't make the mistake. Don't leave this place. like it doesn't get better than this so don't fool yourselves and don't throw away up any opportunities make the best of everything while you're here etc despite that recommendation though now we are going to leave new york city for this next song a dave frischberg song do you miss new york is uh it's thoughts of an ex-new yorker and he doesn't quite know where he's going it's sort of a monologue, and he's rambling and thinking about, you know, all the things that, yeah, he kind of got over this and that, and he, he doesn't really miss the trouble about finding a place to park your car and the noise and the traffic and the stress and all that. And here he is in L.A. Toward the end of the song, he actually starts to have second thoughts. And you can sort of see the thought process as he goes through the song. We must grapple... New York The anger The action Does this laid-back lifestyle Lack a certain satisfaction Sweet song Do you ever burn to pack up And return to the thick of it Or are you really sick of it Ben Ratliff, thanks so much for coming in Thank you Like you always say The pace. Ben Ratliff is a music critic for the New York Times. Musicians aren't the only artists who find inspiration in New York City. Poets do as well, and have for a long time. Fordham University English professor Dr. Mark Caldwell chose to read this Langston Hughes poem for today's show. It's called Advertisement for the Waldorf Astoria. Let me introduce it briefly. The current Waldorf Astoria, which is on Park Avenue between 49th and 50th Streets, was actually built in 1932. The old hotel was where the Empire State Building is now. And there were two great structures early in the Depression that were a testimony to optimism. One of them was the Empire State Building itself. The other was the construction of this huge towering luxury hotel on Park Avenue. Why don't you go ahead and read the poem? Okay, so I'll read it. The title's Advertisement for the Waldorf Astoria. It's by Langston Hughes. Fine living, a la carte. Come to the Waldorf Astoria. Listen, hungry ones. Look, see what Vanity Fair says about the new Waldorf Astoria? 
All the luxuries of private home. Now, won't that be charming when the last flop house has turned you down this winter? Furthermore, it is far beyond anything hitherto attempted in the hotel world. It costs $28 million. The famous Oscar Cherky is in charge of banqueting. Alexandre Gasteau is chef. It will be a distinguished background for society. So, when you've no place to go, homeless and hungry ones, choose the Waldorf as a background for your rags. Or do you still consider the subway after midnight good enough? Rumors. Take a room in the new Waldorf, you down-and-outers, sleepers in charities, flop houses where God pulls a long face and you have to pray to get a bed. They serve swell board at the Waldorf Astoria. Look at the menu, will you? Gumbo Creole. Crab meat and cassolette, boiled brisket of beef, small onions and cream, watercress salad, peach melba. Have lunch in there this afternoon, all you jobless. Why not? Dine with some of the men and women who got rich off of your labor, who clip coupons with clean white fingers because your hands dug coal, drilled stone, sewed garments, poured steel to let other people draw dividends and live easy. Or haven't you had enough yet of the soup lines and the bitter bread of charity? Walk through Peacock Alley tonight before dinner and get warm anyway. You've got nothing else to do. What a powerful message, huh? Well, I think so. Cuts a little close these days. Dr. Mark Caldwell, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Dr. Caldwell is an English professor at Fordham University. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producers McCall Neria and Andrew Hirschman. We hope you have a wonderful Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm.